Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Russian brutality on parade once again. No end in sight for the Middle East conflict. No federal 2024 budget. And the border crisis rolling on. What a great time for Congress to take a recess. But that's what they've done. For a closer look at the honeydew list, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And there is plenty to do, though, Lauren, isn't there? There really is. And there are some key deadlines coming up as soon as next week and the week following that really are going to force action by Congress when they get back from this break, which is about two weeks for the Senate, about a week and a half for the House um, from when they left to when they get back. So, um, yeah, you're right. There's no shortage of things to be concerned about on Capitol Hill. And as lawmakers are either in their districts or traveling abroad to things like the Munich conference that we saw at the end of last week. So, you know, certainly a lot on their list. And not the least of which is the looming deadline when they get back for the continuing resolution to expire. That's right. We have two deadlines coming up. Just to remember people, they split it apart this time around. March 1st is the deadline for four of the bills covering about 20% of funding. And then March 8th for the eight bills that cover about 80% of the funding. So two pretty quick deadlines to have to wrestle with when they get back. Uh, There's probably discussions going on over the phone, even with people uh, scattered across the country and the world, but we will be needing to see text pretty quickly if they're going to do something before that March 1st deadline. And there's a lot of pressure on Mike Johnson in particular, the Speaker of the House, about what he's going to do and how he's going to approach this. Because even the next continuing resolution, if that's how they go, that's a law that they have to get together and write and pass and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And just a handful of days, get that drafted and run it through all the traps that you have to and figure out procedurally how to get it to the floor. And the stopgap bills have been problematic for first Kevin McCarthy when he was speaker. That kind of led to his ouster. And then even the one that Mike Johnson got them to pass last year was um, not done happily by his membership and required a lot of Democratic support. And on the other fronts of Israel and Ukraine aid, it's not so much that the House conservative end of the Republicans have expressed opposition to those things. They just are using it as a wedge for more on border security, although details of what they want are not all that clear. Right. It's kind of stuck right now. The Senate passed its $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, Indo-Pacific. Nothing for the border and no border security language because the earlier package that had been negotiated over months didn't have enough support and was removed from the bill so they could move forward with what they had. In the House, the the going... You know, if you listen to the president, if you listen to Senate Democrats, put this bill on the floor and it would pass. And there's a case to be made that it might. But Mike Johnson has said he won't do that yet. So they're they're sort of stuck on that issue until they figure out what to do. Mike Johnson would say we've passed strong border security language and H.R. 2, but Democrats have opposed that bill. It doesn't stand a chance of getting through the Senate, given the makeup there. So they're in a stalemate. The one thing we saw at the end of the week was a group of moderates in the House release a slimmed down package, about 66 billion for Ukraine, Israel and these other other issues that could potentially be a path forward. But again, they left town without necessarily a plan on how to address this issue. But maybe these looming spending deadlines are a vehicle or a moment to reflect on how to act on that. And maybe the question of this Navalny death that happened last week could maybe, I don't know, get them more sensitized to the fact that it really is a desperate situation between Ukraine and the I was going to say the Soviet Union and Russia, and that we're dealing with something that's not what we want spread over the continent when you see what Vladimir Putin is capable of. 
there there have been a lot of discussions about Ukraine, and there are a group of people who don't want to continue funding it, or, or some people like former President Trump and others who have talked about maybe doing it as a loan instead of as straight funding that is really helping the military complex in the U.S. help produce these weapons or replace what's already been sent over. So, you know, I think that the Navalny developments will be brought up and discussed as part of this, like those senators who are in Munich and hearing probably from Zelensky directly about um, what what he thinks and bringing up Navalny and things like that. So you're you're right. I mean, the looming Russian threat is part of all this, and it, supporting Ukraine is about also um, warding off future wars or future conflict in Eastern Europe and beyond. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. And then there is poor Alejandro Mayorkas. Well, he won't be impeached in the next couple of weeks because the House is out. But is that going to all be revived? It just seems like, I don't know, what are they going to accomplish with it since it's not going to get to the Senate or through the Senate? Well, we saw that House vote by one vote actually agree to impeach him once Majority Leader Steve Scalise came back from cancer treatment and he was the deciding vote in that. Um, the trial will have to kick off at least in a in perhaps a very brief fashion when the Senate comes back. The House managers will go over, announce their charges, and they'll swear in the senators as jurors, and then they'll figure out what to do. They have some options. They could have a trial. They could send it to a committee and say, did the committee review the evidence? Or they could maybe have a vote to just end it pretty quick. But all that is happening in that comeback week, which, just like we've discussed, has that spending deadline at the end of it. So a lot of pressure probably to resolve this or come to some sort of alternative arrangement pretty quickly so they can get back to the business at hand, which includes funding the government. And those of us that live down in the weeds wonder about the FAA authorization. That's also in limbo and kind of an important agency if you fly somewhere. Yeah, definitely a big bill. Has to be dealt with separately from appropriations because of just the way FAA operations have this trust fund that gets ticket taxes and other things flowing into it and then flowing back out. Um, That legislation expires March 8th on that second of the two spending deadlines. House has passed a bill. The Senate committee in charge of it approved something recently. They have to reconcile all that and figure out what to do. I'm not sure if we'll see a Senate debate separately or if they'll work on an agreement that can get through both chambers. It might be a tall order to do all that by March 8th. And as you note, um, there's a lot happening in the aviation space with the Boeing 737 MAX and the doors there and the scrutiny around that and just the desire to pass some legislation around safety and other things important to the aviation sector. So that is a pretty big bill that's kind of overtaken by all these other pieces of legislation. And there were some nominations, too, that were close to action. But again, the Senate gone for two weeks. So what are some of those? Yeah, I think we'll see some more action on that when they get back there. You know, there's a Dellinger at the Office of Special Counsel has been held up, but might be a path forward on that. Uh, We could see even Sean Patrick Maloney to be the OECD. He's a former rep, but that was held up for a while. But kind of an ethics arrangement he agreed to might allow that to move forward. And then judicial nominations, I think we'll see more action on that at the committee level and then on the floor, because in this last year of the Biden administration with a Democratic Senate, there is an imperative to make some progress on filling those slots to kind of leave that lasting imprint, because as we know, judicial nominees are for life. So getting that person in there can be a big deal. And we have one cabinet opening still that um, Julie Sue for the Labor Department. That one still seems stalled. Uh, we'll have to see if there's going to be more action or hearings on that, which uh, the ranking Republican on the committee has called for. And when they do get back, it's March. And then the next thing you know, it's almost campaign season because the presidential race is an internal function in the country, not so much the congressional races. But at what point do they lose interest in some of the details here and start worrying about their own fannies coming back, especially in the House? Certainly the fall, there will be a lot of pressure around that, and they are due to be out 
all of August and all of October, that September session, obviously a government funding deadline, so they have to do something. But it will be hanging over everything. And you can even see with um, Donald Trump and his position on legislation is trickling through to how Republicans are voting and, and approaching some of these major topics. Um, and there are congressional primaries starting in early March as well, including a really big day on March 5th, where I think five states and 115 districts will be on the ballot. So elections are going to be everything in the coming months. Lots of fun. Lauren Duggan is Deputy New News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking. 
that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.